Hi there, welcome to Radio Utopistan. Happy you're here again, listening to our little show that wants nothing less than to interconnect visionary people and bold ideas from around the world. My name is Elisabeth Weid and today we have a super special story for you. One that's very dear to my heart and also kind of the reason I became a journalist, I guess. Curious about natural resources and social movements, about connections around our beautiful globe. You could write a whole book about it. Oh, actually, I'm writing a book about it. It's about nature rights, renewable energy and mining. Sneak peek now here. First time I was in Ecuador was in 2006, doing a voluntary service in Intac. That's a super biodiverse cloud forest in northern Ecuador and the tropical Andean mountains. But underneath this green paradise and all those trees and flowers and birds and frogs and even pumas and bears, there lies copper and some gold worth millions and billions of dollars. Since almost 30 years, different international mining companies try to get it out. So far, without success. The people there don't want it. There's a lot of resistance happening in the Valley of Intak, mostly peaceful. Also with coffee, chocolate, bananas and songs. Hoy en la zona de Intac levantamos nuestra voz Porque el agua es vida y la vamos a defender Porque el agua es vida y la vamos a defender It says, in Intac we raise our voice because water is life and we will defend it. There are rivers and streams almost everywhere in the valley. The Intag River is one of the most important water sources in Ecuador. Around 17,000 people live in the valley, mostly small-scale farmers, on some 1,800 square kilometers, which is something like two times the size of Berlin, for example. In 2006, paramilitaries attacked the village at the center of this conflict, in the center of the valley, Hunin. They were hired by the Canadian mining company that held the concessions in those days, Assenon Copper. Coincidentally, I was present and took photos of the attack and all the craziness that followed the next days. Hostage taking, helicopter coming and people dancing. Those pictures were used in different lawsuits and also in documentaries. I put one here in the show notes. The mining company had to leave a few years later. Now, more than 15 years later, there's another lawsuit and another mining company is involved, Codelco from Chile. The special thing here is now, because I mean there are so many mining conflicts around the world and there will be more with the rising demand for natural resources. So the special thing about the Intact case is, it's about nature rights. Ecuador is the first and so far only country in the world where nature has rights as a legal subject on a constitutional level. That might sound a bit abstract if you haven't heard of it before, but it's super fascinating. Some say it is as revolutionary as the end of slavery or women's right to vote. We'll see about that in a hundred years. Now and here and anyway, the Inter case is crucial and exceptional in this whole concept uh, where nature counts as a legal subject and has rights from and for itself and not only to serve us humans. There are many people fighting for nature in the Intag Valley and around it. Here, now, I'm talking to Carlos Soria. He has been part of the resistance against the copper mine since the beginning, and he speaks English. His life alone is worth a book. 
71 years old, born in Cuba, he meets and dislikes Che Guevara, goes to the US as a teenager, studies biology, travels the world for two years, and there Intac is the place he likes best. So he buys some land and he thinks he can have a quiet life as a family man and small-scale farmer. But no, after a few peaceful years, the copper mine conflict starts in the 90s. But I mean, it's just amazing after 27 years of confronting three transnationals, governments, paramilitaries, police, military, that there's still enough people saying no. This is not what Intag needs or wants and is damaging our communities. If you think about that, 27 years, you know, police raids, false lawsuits, false arrests, incarcerations, and, and there's enough people still saying no. That's not right, and it's not going to happen. So that's the real story to me. After so many years, there's in people like Javier and, and Senaida, all her family, and, and Liana and Hugo, all these people are still, they say no, and living off the land is what it's all about. And you're not going to violate my rights. That's a real story there. You know, putting up five years, it's okay. But 27 years, that doesn't happen very often. It does not happen very often. We sit at a table outside his little finca. There's a wild vegetable garden behind us with kale, coffee, bananas and tree tomatoes growing wildly. His two dogs and cats stroll around. It's peaceful on the surface. Mining conflicts can get really dangerous and even deadly. Carlos went into hiding two times during the last 30 years. Amnesty International started a case to protect him. Other activists in the valley have been in prison. Luckily, nobody has been hurt life-threateningly or even killed so far. In the conversation now, we talk about the methods that have helped them to drive out two transnational mining companies and put another one on hold. About his utopia, of course, and what to do with politicians you don't like. First, I wanted to know where his energy and hope come from to keep on going for almost 30 years now. First of all, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It is extremely exhausting and very, it can be really depressing. There are really bad days. But what keeps me going is that I've come to realize that I am completely a part of this ecosystem. And since I think I'm a responsible person, I, if, if you're part of a community, in this case a biological community, it seems irresponsible not to do anything if it's threatened. So I think that's at the core of what keeps me going, that I feel responsible. I'm part of this community, therefore I'm responsible for the well-being of the community, the biological community, social community too. So that's why I don't give up, and I, and I love this place. I mean, there's also that attachment, emotional attachment, but there is this sort of like supernatural realization that you're part of something. So I think that's that's at the core what keeps me going. And why? And it, but like I said, I'm. It is extremely exhausting because your whole life starts revolving around mining. All I think about, just about when I get up in the morning, is what can I research and 
and present, and maybe I could change somebody's mind. It gets to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> so it is. It is. Uh, there's some really dark sides to this long struggles, very long, and the fact that I, you know, no one feels safe in the position that myself or people like Javier and some of the people who are singled out to be the main troublemaker. So there's always that, and I'm sure all activists feel that way, that you're not always completely safe. So there's a lot of downsides, but that's what keeps me going, the, the fact that I love this place a lot and that I do feel to be part of, integral part of the ecosystem. Can you describe this feeling a little bit? You said it's something No, somebody happened. asked me that the other day. It's, it's very difficult. On moments when you really feel that way, you say you wake up and you have mining on your mind, and when, in what situations do you have that feeling that you are? It's, it's latent. It's always there, right? But it's uh, over overshadowed sometimes because I, there's like this dark cloud hanging over all of us, knowing that at any time the government can take a hundred million dollars and approve this huge project. So, but it's, it's always latent, it's always there. And sometimes the, the clouds are just, the light is perfect in the forest and, and the mountains. And it just, then, it, then it, instead of just being latent, sleeping, it comes out. It's over, and then it's overpowering. There's beauty, this land, and that you're, you feel this stronger connection. But it is, it's always there. It, it's just that it's so difficult, I mean, to deal day-to-day, trying to make a living, deal with the mining companies, dealing with organizations and egos and individuals. So it, it always, a lot of it gets overwhelmed and overshadowed by this other mundane life. That happens to everybody, I think, to some extent. Yeah. Maybe, do you maybe have a ritual or something to take you back to that? Because I know you are not a religious person. I'm not religious. You don't have anything to do with the Pachamama no. concept. It's so I find it quite interesting and fascinating how this connection is. Well, if, if you study the life of some of the main environmentalists, a lot of them had sort of like an awakening moment, something that sparked in them this connection that they were able to, to realize that we really are one with everything. Mm-hmm. And that that's happened to me a few times. Can I give an example? Here, when I lived in the, in the U.S., when I traveled around, there were some moments, mm-hmm. and, and, and sometimes, not always, but it was, it was connected with taking psychotropic plants. Mm-hmm. It was able to. You were able to see things clearer, but that stayed. Mm-hmm. But not always. I've had it here a lot without anything. Just waking up and seeing this where I live and seeing. I, I think I have an artist's eye, and I'm, I'm able to see beauty everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere. You said you have an artist's eye. Well, what is it? An eye for art. Ah, yeah. I'm a photographer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I see a lot of beauty where a lot of people just walk by, they don't see it. You know, a branch can be beautiful the way that, that the lichen is growing and stuff like that. So that kindles this uh, connection when I see those things and experience those things. 
And that's easy to see here because it's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have the privilege to be your neighbor right now. Yeah. I'm just really waking up to those yeah, sounds. Yeah, this is a beautiful place. Yeah. It's, and, it's, and it kills me to know that governments can have, be so short-sighted that they would destroy places like these, basically for greed. There's a lot of corruption in places like Ecuador that they would give this away. So the, the image comes to mind, which is not directly applicable, but I like the image. In the Bible, there's this part, and I don't hardly read the Bible, but there's some things that are cool, of uh, the idea of throwing pearls to pigs. In other words, pigs don't understand the teachings or whatever. It's just like you're, you're throwing all these pearls, biological, cultural pearls to transnational mining companies that will destroy it. And all they see is a value what's underground. It's darkening to think about that. The governments are willing to give all this away and be completely destroyed for generations for only a few years of uh, getting money, but destroying the life of future generations and the rivers and all the wildlife. And So that's, that's hard also. Once you become part of this, It hurts when you realize that. And, and then you find out in the, in the end, Ecuador will be poorer. After all that, in the end, Ecuador will be much poorer than it is now, without any uh, option of development, because you would destroy its biodiversity and water resources. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you destroy all that and... Yeah, since years there have been different companies wanting to get to, to that copper and also different international organizations. Yeah. Can you give, I mean, of course it's hard to summarize those 30 years, but in your words, for someone who has never heard of Intac from oh. whatever other country, what's the story of the conflict in your words? I mean, you've been part of it since the beginning. Since, so. since, since 95, 27 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started I was one of the founders of DECOIN, which is the environmental organization that was created to confront mining. That was our main impetus when we found out that there was a Japanese company here. Before, I was living peacefully here. So it was bliss for like 16 years. 16 years, we had no problems with miners. Didn't even know my miners were in town. So once we found out, we decided, and I already had created a small environmental group here that's still going. So, but it was too small. We, I realized that we need to do something bigger. And then I also realized that people were chopping down the forest and burning down the forest and the fields to plant, and it was an environmental issue. So I, I, I grabbed the opportunity and presented the idea to a group of us that were here, right here at the farm to create the coin, to confront the mining. So that's how the resistance began with the founding of the coin, January 1995. And then we found out about, we didn't know, nobody knew about mining. So the more we found out, the more we, we realized that it would be monumentally disastrous for areas like these. In what way? Mining, especially open pit large-scale mining, which is the most common type of mining, industrial mining these days, very large-scale. It's very difficult to, for people to visualize unless they've seen photos or visiting. It's very damaging, especially large-scale, because 
you have to process hundreds of millions of tons of earth and subsoil per year. You take away the subsoil because most of the deposits, most of the ore deposits are deep underground. They're not laying on the ground anymore. The easy deposits, they disappeared 50 years ago. You used to go maybe dig 100 feet and, and dig out the ore and process it. Now you have to go hundreds and hundreds of meters to get at the ore. So that's why it's so impacting. You have to remove everything between the topsoil and where the ore is. The ore is the copper mixed with other minerals, and that's what's economically viable. So you have to remove everything, and to get at the ore, you have to make these huge open pits, this huge like a crater, because the ore is so deep that you need these really wide uh, pits to get at the ore. It, it's just the, the nature of this type of mining. So you have to remove hundreds of millions. In, in some cases, in this case, we're talking about thousands of millions of tons of earth before you even get to the copper ore. Okay? So that's one of the main issues. What do you do with all this topsoil and subsoil that you're not even going to process? You need to put it somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. In areas like these, Intag, Intag is in northwest Ecuador. Ecuador is a mega diverse country, and we are in the most, one of the most biologically diverse sites of this mega diverse country, northwest Ecuador. We consider where we are um, cloud forests, one of the most endangered ecosystems in the world. Less than 5% of the, the world's tropical forests are are cloud forest. So we are a type of tropical forest, which is have to be in the mountains. Above 15, 1,800 meters is called cloud forest. It is within the tropics, so that's why it's tropical forest, which is where most of the biodiversity is, although most people don't realize that. Most people think the Amazon. We are much more diverse per area than the Amazon, especially in plants. And so there's a lot more species in danger of extinction in these ecosystems because it's broken. There's a tremendous diversity of temperature, climate, according to the elevation. That's why it's so biodiverse. So this is why it's so impacting, because if you destroy a thousand hectares here, you will destroy the habitat of maybe a hundred species in danger of extinction. It is also uh, an area where we have earthquakes. So when you, when you have an open pit mine and you have a strong earthquake, the walls could collapse on top of people. Uh, it rains so much. The rain is also a big issue. That's why it's so dangerous. It rains over three meters here of rain. So what do you do with all this water? You got to continually pump that water out. The other issue, which is true, not, not just here, but in many kinds of ore deposits, and most people in the world don't realize, is that copper, or gold, or nickel, cobalt, these minerals are not in pure form. They don't realize that. People think, I just go copper, pick it up, and melt it and use it. In this case, uh, all these minerals are mixed with other minerals. In this case, the copper here is mixed with lead and arsenic, cadmium and chromium, which are extremely toxic minerals. Not only that, in this case, to get a... If you process a 1,000 kilos of this ore you only get about four kilos of copper. That's something else 
people don't realize. The metal content of the ore here is about 0.4%. 99.6% will be waste. In the, in the case of gold, it could be over a million to one. One ounce of pure gold, a million ounces of waste product. That waste product is not just dirt. It's got all these toxic elements. And just about all, all Ecuadorian ore bodies go with gold or copper. There's also sulfur compounds. So that creates acid mine drainage. Those elements mix with rainwater. You take it out, expose it to air and water, and it creates sulfuric acid. And that sulfuric acid will kill everything on contact, all the streams, immediately. So that's why some of these mining projects are contaminating in perpetuity. And until nature neutralizes that, it can be two or 3,000 years. And it's almost impossible to predict correctly and extremely costly to neutralize. In fact, it's, it's almost impossible to do it. Mining companies will say they can do it, but they can't guarantee that 300 years from now they will still be around taking care of that waste rock and all the, uh, the tailings ponds. But governments believe that because it's in their interest. Or they just don't care about the next 300 They don't years. care, also. So let's, let's go back to the last uh, 30 years, just in a short summary or in, in, in your words to tell the story of the Inter conflict. I mean, you started with Bushy Metals in the 90s, and yeah. then there was Athen and Copper, the Canadian company coming in. And where are we now? First of all, we kicked out the Japanese. Bishi Metals was here on one of these so-called international aid cooperation projects where Japan's going to help Ecuador by developing its mining industry. Well, Japan imports 100% of its copper, so it's in their interest to find copper. And it was a government-funded project. The Japanese funded it, Japanese government. So they found some copper, but they, were had, they had to leave because the communities kicked them out. They burned the mining camp in Mitsubishi, owner of Mitsubishi Metals. They left in 1998 after about two and a half years of resistance. And the resistance consisted out of what? Burning down the camp? and Well, it's just burning down the camp was the last straw. But, but Mitsubishi saw we were being organized. We got a hold of the environmental impact study done by the Japanese government, and that's where you really find out the real impacts of what a large-scale mining project can be in a place like this. People got freaked out. Communities would have to be relocated, Again, most people don't realize this. To drive the electric vehicle, you may be contributing to relocating whole communities, violating human rights, contaminating water with heavy metals, extinguishing habitat that are harboring endangered species. All that was in the environmental impact study of the Japanese. So people said, are you kidding me? <laughs> this is not development. It's obviously de development for the companies. They banded together. We helped band together. All the local governments were against it. And so they had to leave after all the resistance. They said they realized they weren't getting anywhere. But they found some copper. So it was an interesting project. But they couldn't finish. They had to leave. In 2004, 18 years ago, uh, we found out a Canadian mining company was in town. There was a, there were a small mining company called Junior Mining Company, and they don't care about their reputation. 
So they were really aggressive once they found out that there was a strong resistance. They couldn't even get their mining concession because the communities blocked the roads, physically blocked the roads. And meanwhile, Intag was already more organized by the time the uh, Canadians came. There were a lot more organizations, and that helped, the fact that there were so many more organizations. Back then, we were the only ones. You imagine how difficult it was. Even when the Canadians were here, there were already some organizations, so it was a lot easier. Sorry, the dark is so... It's just, it's... You want me to shut them up? Yeah, here, here, hold, pause that for a minute. <laughs> okay, funny. So, yeah, I was telling you about the Canadian mining companies. Once they found out the resistance was really fierce, even though they did all these other things to get in, offering people jobs, offering clinics, and everything they offered, but which people still wouldn't let them in. And part of it, too, is because we started buying forests for the communities, and that helped because the communities was protecting their forest and their tourism project, which was an alternative to mining. We created that, the Coim created the Huning tourism project. We bought land right over where the copper is and gave it to them. And they did tourism, and it was working great. It's a, it's a really good project. So they, Copper Mesa, it started out of sending copper, and then they sent, they, after all the hassles, they changed to, their name to Copper Mesa. They, it got to the point where they were getting desperate because they, they couldn't even go in to explore. So they hired all these paramilitaries, people from the coast with military experience, and they gave them illegal guns, and they went in violently, shooting at people. But even so, the community stopped them. And then it, it's a very famous... Uh, scene of the confrontation of people shooting, and then later they arrest all, all these paramilitaries. They turn them over to the police, but nothing happens. Nothing happens. So you, you realize, that's what, one of the first times I realized that that's the difficulty of fighting these huge corporations. Nothing happened. They violated the law. We turn over the guns to them. That organization was illegal, and they were hired by another illegal organization, Everything was illegal, but nothing happened. Yeah, but they were thrown out. They did, were not allowed to work anymore. I, I, I happen to have been at the scene myself no, yeah, in 2006. Yeah. And then but the, nobody went to jail for illegal guns. Yeah, no one went to jail, no. but the, the company was not allowed to work there anymore. They had to leave. Oh, you mean my Copper Cop Mesa? Yeah. No, but not right away. They actually, the government took away their concession, mm -hmm. but then they got it back. That's another chapter. Okay, that's another. Th yeah. That's a detailed chapter. But anyway, yeah. prior to that, okay. they did some very dirty things, including trying to arrest me with a false lawsuit. Nineteen police came looking for me, heavily armed police, but I was able to escape. So that was one of some of the strategies that the companies use when they get desperate. Eventually, Copper Mesa left. And it helped that we broke them financially because we sued them and sued the Toronto Stock Exchange. And they were kicked out of Toronto Stock Exchange. They ran out of money. They couldn't do anything here. That also helped. With, without money, you can't buy votes. So they left. And that was around 2009, more or less 2009. Follow the money and try to expose to their financiers, 
what the companies are doing here and take him to court if you can. And that works. And that set a precedent. I think that was the only time, certainly the first time a, a stock exchange has been sued for human rights abuses. So, okay, so goodbye, Copper Mesa. <laughs> uh, but that didn't last too long, the peace and quiet. You know, two, three years later, 2011, the Ecuadorian mining company, Inami, got the mining concession. They didn't have any money or experience, so the government of Ecuador under, under Rafael Correa signed a deal with Chile for the Chilean mining company, the state mining company, to help the Ecuadorian mining company develop this specific project. This is one of them. Codelco. Codelco of Chile, the world's largest copper producer. And so the nightmare starts again. Once it starts showing up in 2012, 2013, they try and go to communities, convince them, oh, we're going to do these things right. We're state mining companies. We're not like the nasty transnational. Sustainable mining. Everything, sustainable, responsible, you name it. They, but it didn't work. The communities did not want them around. After all, the, the, again, they offered everything. Yeah, in May 2014... They forced their way in with police and military. And they installed a mining camp where the community had their tourism. It's sort of like a shack where it took people to look at the forest and birds. In the community reserve that they were protecting, the community had been protecting this reserve for decades. That's where the mining companies drill for copper. And they take samples to figure out where the copper is and how much and how deep. So that's what they did, and they logged primary trees in this beautiful forest. They contaminated water, and they they ruined the tourism project. And eventually, they were able to finish the first phase of exploration. In 2018, they took out their equipment, hoping to come back and finish exploring in another part of their of their mining concession. Mining companies and government only see the value in the copper, gold, nickel. That's all they see. Communities see it's, it's a good place to live, to raise your family, to raise crops, to have a healthy lifestyle, to live what in the Ecuadorian Constitution is summa causa, to have a, a good life, which is a right. So that's, that's the conflict that happens here. It happens everywhere in the world. It's this clash of visions. Which leads me now to the rights of nature, because the Chileans came, they explored for uh, three and a half years. They left, but they did contaminate, they, they logged primary forest. We realized that they were violating one of Ecuadorian's constitutional rights, which gives the nature rights basically to a good life. You can look at it the way to reproduce itself, to have healthy systems, life systems, so forth. But under Correa, we knew we would lose because there was no independence of power. So if you have a country without independence of power, you're much more likely to lose. And so we didn't try 
to take it to court. And let me just shortly explain a little bit more what this means with the rights of nature, because it's something super right. exceptional. It's Ecuador still is the only country in the world that has this on a constitutional level that nature is a legal subject. I mean, there are initiatives all around the world trying yeah. to have the same in their constitutions, and there are little lays here and there where it's already a, you have a river that's already a legal subject or something. Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, yeah, but Ecuador is like the leading country the in leader. all this, yeah. and it's and it's like a revolutionary concept because it's not only humans or companies, yeah. as in our neoliberal world, that have rights, but now you have nature as rights, at least on the paper, and yeah. that's where we come back to you, where you didn't want to do this under the president um, Correa. Rafael Correa. If you know anything about mining, you know that it, that it would disrupt all kinds of cycles in nature and destroy habitat of endangered species. It will, it will actually drive species to extinction. So in, in Ecuador, since, 19, since 2008, the rights of nature was written into the Constitution. So to recognize nature as a subject and not, and not a thing, not an object. When you do that, a subject all of a sudden has rights. Some people say that's impossible. The, the nature can't speak. How can it defend itself? Well, an abandoned child can't speak for itself. A baby, it has no. It can't defend itself, and yet it has rights to life and and health and many other rights to education, and so forth. So this concept took the environmental rights to a new level, and now the rights of nature are inherent to nature. They're not connected to humans. This is what dif differentiates them. There's environmental rights, and that's you're talking humans. If, if uh, somebody does something to the environment and it affects your health, those are environmental rights. But now we're talking nature rights. The river has a right not to be contaminated. It doesn't matter whether you get sick or not. It doesn't matter. That river has rights to have clean water so the species can evolve and reproduce. Those are rights that nature has. And so that was written into the Constitution, and Ecuador did become the first country in the world to have the rights of nature respected in the Constitution. In 2008, we went to the, when they were written in the Constitution, I think we went three times when they were writing the Constitution in Monte Cristi, and we met with some of the authors. Alberto Costa was there, a few people from Intag, and we met with them, and mining was one of the, our main issues. But we were supportive of the all environmental rights, including the rights of nature. But our main focus was mining. Anyway, that's another, a whole different story. All of a sudden, there's a change of government, and all of a sudden the courts are a little bit more independent, and we make the decision to try and take it to court, this mining project, because it, it's so impacting to nature. And we thought, I thought that we needed a little stronger argument. And so we, we got a little bit of money, and I figured that if we could find an endangered species or endemic to that area, or a new species, it would be a stronger argument. So we got some money, we hired a Central Hambatu and Quito that specializes in amphibians. Amphibians, I thought, would be the best chance of finding something new, because Ecuador is so diverse in amphibians. And we were lucky that they found one, that, uh, a frog that they consider extinct since 1989. And it's the only place in the world that has been found within the mining concession. So that was it. I mean, that, that 
that was the the argument that convinced us that we really need to present the, this lawsuit. And in 2019, they found another frog, again, only within the mining site. So we have much stronger arguments. And we went to court. And one of our arguments is what I just said, that because mining will contaminate the water, contamination will drive the species critically in danger to extinction. So that's one of our arguments in, in the court case. And there will be, we lost with the lower court, which was not uh, a surprise to us, knowing that this judge's history. But we think we stand a good chance at the appeals, and definitely at the Supreme Court, we will win. We have the arguments to convince an impartial judge, a court, that mining, large-scale mining, will violate the rights of nature, therefore violate the Constitution, and it shouldn't go ahead. Wow, that was a quick run through 30 years of a thousand aspects. Oh, I left most of them. <laughs> yeah, I know, the arbitrary court, for example, and all those things. But yeah, those are arbitra arbitration. But I would like you to summarize the strategies or the yeah. things that help endure those 30 years of right. lucha. Uh, yeah, I got asked that question so much because we were successful against two mining companies that I wrote a manual. Uh, and it's free online, protecting your communities from mining and other extractive industries. Mm -hmm. The main thing is, for all you activists out there, is not to even let them in the community. Because once they get in, they're very skillful, very skillful at dividing and creating false expectations. They're really, really successful. It's, it's for you to get together right away with your community and make the decision not to let them in. Absolutely. And then, in the meantime, get organized, get in touch with other organizations, which we did. We got in touch with local, national, international organizations to help us, because we didn't know anything about mining. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is education. Find out exactly who's behind this project, how they're getting their funding, how did they get their mining concession, was it all legal, was it not illegal, and start publicizing, denouncing Get a lawyer to help you get information from the government. But the, you can do all, all that you want, but if they're able to infiltrate the community, it's much harder. So the best strategy is not to let them in at all. Tell them that you're going to decide collectively. No board should decide. The whole community has to decide because it's easy for them to buy off the leaders. Offer them a high-paying job, for example, or just give them money. That community should not make a decision unless everyone is in these meetings. And in, in those meetings, you should decide to know not to allow anyone from the mining company or the government to talk about mining until everyone's fully educated about the, the social and environmental impact. South America is by far the deadliest region for environmental activists in the world. The worst sector, mining. That's what the NGO Global Witness found. In their survey, they almost count 230 killed activists for nature all around the world in 2020. On average, four nature defenders have been killed every week since the signing of the Paris Agreement. Other estimations have much higher numbers, mining always being one of the deadliest sectors. And the run for resources is getting more and more heated, not only for cobalt and lithium, but especially for copper as well. Some call it even the new oil. 
According to the International Energy Agency, annual copper consumption will double in the next 20 years. Why? Because everywhere where there is electricity, you have copper. In cables and windmills and solar panels and, of course, in electric cars. So the pressure to get the copper out of the tropical rainforest of Intac is rising and rising. And Carlos keeps fighting and fighting. He has hardly one day without some email, some conversation or writing about the conflict, he says. There are a lot of social impacts. You feel those way before the environmental impacts. There's a lot of division, a lot of really nasty uh, feelings and infights within family. And, and because they start creating these false expectations. Everybody's going to make a lot of money, you know. And then the young people, especially, when there's no connection to the land, and they're more interested in money. So they start filling their heads with this idea that everybody's going to make money and that we're not going to contaminate. We're just going to look around. It's all lies. How do you create this unity and how do you educate people on that? Because, I mean, I've been here several times now and I have the feeling that some people, they don't want to hear that topic anymore. They, don't. they are fed up with it. They It's too just late. want to have a good job. They yeah. don't want to think about it anymore. Yes, nature is nice, but I would I want to send my kids to school. For example, I, one time I was hitchhiking with someone who was working in the Selva Alegre mine for concrete. Yeah, for yeah. Cement. Cement. Yeah, and he had worked all his life in there, ruined his health. His doctor had told him he had ruined his health and he had to stop, otherwise he would die. Wow. And then he left and I asked, so, and what's your, how do you stand with mining now? And he said, yeah, it's okay, it's good, that was my price. I have a nice car, my kids go to school yeah. and I had a job for several years to buy me you can't, all those things. You, you can't win those arguments. There's a, a perfect case. In Cerro de Pasco, Peru. The mine is here and the town is here. Most kids are contaminated, their blood contaminated with lead, and they have a lot of neurological problems leukemia, cancer, learning disabilities, huge learning disability. And those parents go to work every day because of the, they, they think there's no alternative. So, this is why it's so dangerous to even let them in because of that. That mentality starts creeping into their... They start changing the way they see life. And you you can't... It's very difficult to fight against that. If you tell the government and the company, stop, we're going to find out first before you come in. Mm. So when they do come in, you know how they work, how they operate. You know how they lie to people, mm. how they manipulate communities. So you're ready for all that, all the narrative. If you don't prepare before they come in, it's too late. Because mm. it's very easy, the idea of easy money, everywhere. Yeah, but how do you create the community? How do you create what? How do you create community and to make people want to understand, be educated? Well, the, the best thing is by experience. Ideally, you take a few influential people mm. to a mining site that's been devastated, a community has been devastated by mining. Mm. And you say, look, this is our future. Mm. It's difficult because it costs too much money sometimes. Or you invite those people to your community and say, look, this is what's going to happen. They did it to us. Our rivers are dead. There's more prostitution. There's more venereal diseases. There's more fights. And we were we had to be relocated. So and so, so you, you create consciousness. That's the most effective, people to people. You bring them together. 
Okay. But before mining companies come in. Okay. Okay. That's why it's so essential. Okay, and then when they are in, let's just summarize some of the tools. So you, you use justice system, you go to court. I've seen demonstrations. Is that helpful? We, 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 you, you write thousands of emails, but I also <laughs> see that there is not so much email skills around. Zero. In, in <laughs> What's well, up a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as with all the problems in the world we have, but we all also have just a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of time. What, what is, from your experience, the most effective thing? Where is it, where is it worth putting time and energy in? It's not one. Not one. Uh, you mean you have to, uh, to, to spread yeah. your energy? You got to do, if you fight only local, a lot of people, most people here believe, they don't realize that there's a world out there. Mm -hmm. And if you fight local, you lose. That's, that's when you start okay. disappearing and tortures and killing. Mm -hmm. That's when you, you get, right away you make the fight regional. You get in touch with fishers. Fishers? Fishermen. Anyone who could be impacted by mining. Because mm -hmm. the, the pollution doesn't stay in the mining site. Mm -hmm. So downstream, if you have people that depend on fishing, mm -hmm. you get them involved in the fight. Shrimp farmers, for example, shrimp farmers should be our allies because mm. they will be impacted. And people that collect seafood, mm. those people will be impacted. Tourism, you try and get these networks mm. and say, we've got to stop this because you yourself, you, they'll kill you. Mm. You got to get as many allies as possible and try and spread the leadership out. So in case they kill you, you the fight goes on, for example. Mm. But the main thing is to stop them from even coming in. Right away. And you can find out strange people start showing up around your community. Find out right away what they're doing. Get in touch with somebody at the, the, at the capital that knows about mining or petroleum or whatever mm -hmm. and see where the mining concessions are. Or find out if your community is in a mining concession. Mm -hmm. Find out who's, who does it belong to. And then, and, and then expect these experts, sociologists, to come around and get information from you. Mm -hmm. So they know what the weak areas of your communities mm. are. And then they'll go attack those areas. Mm. You know, they'll, they'll find the most influential person in the community. Mm. And say, we're, you know, we're interested. We want to give you the best job. You'll be head of uh, community relations. You're going to earn so much money. So that, that's what these guys do. Uh, and do you have lessons learned? Things you should rather not have done? I mean, not you as a person, but the community, the people protecting nature? Yeah, I mean, always. There's always... I mean, one of the recent things is that uh, I always believe that you always have to try really hard to work with local governments. Mm. And that means having a lot of patience because you're dealing with politicians. You may not like them, but they are... And authoritative. They wield power. They can make a difference. So some of my colleagues, they say, ah, that, that mayor is an asshole. I'm not going to speak to him, not even speak to him. I don't believe that's right. I need to, You need to be really patient. You've got to try to work with local government. Some local authorities are not necessarily the most personable persons in the world, and you may dislike them, but that doesn't mean that you can't sit down with them, you know. To try and work things out because they are an important uh, part of the puzzle and they can make a big difference. So I'm willing to do that. Sit down. Some of my colleagues, absolutely not. They dislike the, some of the local government officials so much, they will not sit down with them at all. 
But they can make a huge difference. Even in a corrupt country like Ecuador? Even in a corrupt country like Ecuador. So that's been one of the issues of not having the foresight or the wisdom to just let something slide by. You know, like what do you mean? If the local government official does something bad, something ridiculous, mm-hmm. you don't hate them forever because they did that. Okay. You have patience. Mm-hmm. You know, sit down with them mm-hmm. because ultimately he could be part of the reason the mining was stopped. Mm-hmm. They actually have rights over the land use, for example. Mm-hmm. If you really wanted to, if he really wanted to fight against government, he could say no mining in the county. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the, one of the mistakes recently made was to alienate uh, local government officials mm-hmm. and not to involve them more into the struggle. Mm-hmm. One of the issues, too, and I think it's true all over the, the world, is that it's hard to get organizations to work together. Everybody's over here working over there. And I really don't know how to solve that. I've tried. Yeah, at the national level, same thing. Yeah. Ego, what you mean? Ego's definitely part of it. There's also the fact that everybody's too busy fighting their fights. They don't have any more energy to go in another meeting to try and do something over here when shit, the whole sky's falling down here. <laughs> and it's also, I mean, uh-huh. we're humans. Ego's definitely part of it. Uh, institutional jealousy, mm-hmm. envy. You know, oh, your organization is getting money, blah, blah, blah. And you're in the media and you're not. Oh, yeah, that's right. And now you're again in the media. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's just bullshit. Yeah. And I have the impression, like, last time I was here was two years ago, and it was before the pandemic even. I had the feeling everyone was sleeping and it was a big frustration and it was a big like, almost depression and no one was really into any hope or any action that would lead to something. And now I have a totally different feeling that there are so many organizations involved, so many people involved. What, yes. what, is that, do you have the same feeling or Maybe is it just surprised. me? Or what? I'll give you an example. Yeah. It, it, one of the things that activists can be really frustrating. Javier called me the other day. He said, you know, people are getting organized. Everybody's going to work for the company. They're, they're forming a cooperative of um, truck drivers in Junín, which is new. We've got to do something. Let's get organized. Let's let's organize. Let's have a meeting. And I said, yeah, of course. So I, I sent this request from Javier to all these organizations, all of them. How many are we talking Probably about? Probably 10. Yeah. One person answer mm. of all that. So, I and I don't understand it. Mm. Part of the reason is, and I think this happens too, in, in Ecuador, people mm. are, are used to reacting to a threat. They can't foresee I guess it's not just like it, this is a this <laughs> is look a, at the climate crisis. This is a chess game. Yeah, you know, they can't foresee, they can't prepare. So right now, mm. the environmental impact study could be approved because that's why they're hiring all these people. They're creating this co-op for heavy transport. Why? Why are they creating a co-op for heavy transport? I don't know to give people jobs. But why? What jobs? And also Cerro Pelado, people are saying, yeah, they're hiring people. We don't know what to do. I think they're building a camp. So there's this 
threat happening right now. Mm. So I, I send this information, one person responds. So again, I think they're sleeping again. Mm. And it is this, we're, we're in the habit of reacting. Mm. If it really happens, if they come in there with the bulldozers, then they'll react. Mm. But it's too late. Mm. That's what I mean about you have to stop this before they poison your community. Mm. You have to stop it because once they come in, it's too late. Mm. It really is too late because okay. they start investing too much money and buying too many people and, and changing values. And, and vision. Although some people want a motorcycle, and that's all they care about. Before, mm-hmm. it's about living peacefully with your community mm-hmm. and having nice friendships, and that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult. I don't know how we've lasted so long. <laughs> and I, I tell you the truth, I don't know. It just because it's very difficult. Money is so difficult to find. And then the steady check, month after, agriculture doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. The security of that check every month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my impression was also also here on the level of intact, but also on the national and international level that there are more people interested and more people want to do something to protect. This oh, I place. sure hope you're right. I don't know about that. But yeah, maybe it's just my illusion. You're hopeful. It's good to be delusional every once in a while. Illusion, delusion. I don't know. Um, I would like to go on the big topic. You've been to Munich to talk to the car industry there because it's all connected with yeah. renewable energies, electronic cars and all that. And I still hear the story so often and heard it in the last years on my research on natural resources and supply chains. There is copper and the treasure underneath the ground here. Ecuador is in big depth. Why not just take it out and get rich and solve the climate crisis? Yeah, It's a wonderful. beautiful story, no? Bullshit. Yeah, I know. Where to start? Yeah, if consumers don't realize what the impacts of their lifestyle generate in countries like Ecuador, human rights abuse, contaminated rivers, whole communities, forced relocations, extinction of species... If they don't realize that, there's no way to stop this. That's why uh, we need to make this information much more available. People have to be aware that their lifestyle has a direct connection with environmental human rights, environmental destruction, human rights violations. So they need to be aware of where the materials of their consumer goods are coming from and really demand that it comes from areas that where human rights are not being violated or forests being cut down or rivers destroyed, species gone extinct. That's the real challenge. How do you get that information to the consumer level? So they're aware that your BMW could come from our forest and is driving species extinct or your Mercedes or your Volkswagen. And there has not yet been a really good mechanism to expose that, to show that. I don't know exactly what needs to be done, but it, this, there are more. It's true. More people are working on that to try and evidence that. So it's right there in case anybody wants to know. You should be able to just log on to the internet, 
and say, okay, where does the copper for my BMW come from? What mine? Not, not what company. What mines is it coming from? And then each mine should be ranked as far as environmental, social, cultural impacts. I mean, I'm hoping that that happens soon. Yeah, they are working on this this copper mark, for example. This yeah, or Irma. And all that. The, the problem with all that is that a lot of it's greenwashing because you can certify one mine, but your other nine mines are violating human rights and contaminating rivers and driving species to extinction. Mm -hmm. But it's a start. It's a start, and it, again, it's about the justice system. For example, in Germany, next year there will be a new law in, in place where you have to know about what, where all your stuff is coming from when you are a company. And when you know, just when you have just a little hint that something's going wrong, wrong within your supply chain, that you have to take care of it. If not, you can be sued and you're fined. That'd be great. That sounds like the right, the right path. But again, it's words on paper, and it needs people to... Yeah, it is. I mean, it's just like the rights of nature. It sounds great on paper. Yeah. But when it comes down to applying, it's difficult. Well, you saw our lawsuit, how, yeah. how difficult it is. There's a tremendous amount of economic interest mm. to make sure these kinds of mining projects go through, even though it will clearly violate several constitutional rights. But there's billions and billions of dollars behind this particular mine. So you have the most wonderful constitution, but if you don't have independent judges, then no, that help much. Yeah, and I guess also a society that stands behind this constitution or fills it with life or something like the Ecuadorian constitution with the, the summa, good life. Summa, is, summa, uh, summa yeah, uh, Your livelihood or, yeah. or well-being. Yeah. I'd like to use well-being. Before talking to you, I was thinking about, because I've done quite some research on land rights and natural resources in different places, and also, for example, palm oil or coal or other resources, and I was looking for the link, what's connecting all this and the struggles. And for me, it was about the, this interpretation, what's the good life? Right. And then there are people who think the good life lies within money and power, and then there are the others that think good life lies within well, something it, like it's uh, harmony. I, to me, that that is a right to a good life or summa kausai. Hmm. It's about harmony. It's harmony with your environment, with your family, with your friends, with your the whole environment. It's this harmony, and money's part of it, but it's not the thing. There's other values in life, so people get it all wrong. When you think of wealth, most people think of what? Money, cars, hmm. cars, money, wealth. Hmm. We're screwed. There's other kinds, many other kinds of wealth, cultural wealth, topsoil, one of the most important kinds of wealth a country could have. Hmm. Biodiversity, clean air. Those are that's a wealth. But everybody's focused on economic wealth. Mm. We don't change that. We're screwed. This planet is screwed. And the, the, one good thing about the Constitution is that it does try to introduce that, make people reflect. What is summa causa? What is it for you? Well, it's harmony. You've got to be in harmony with, where you, with yourself, starting with yourself, but with your neighbors, and not only human neighbors, mm. no, but harmony with where you are with who you are and where you are. Mining companies completely disrupt that. 
completely, as you, it's easy to see everywhere in the world. So that's not so much outside. That's not good life. I mean, how, how can you call good life contaminated rivers you can't swim in? That's one perception of what a good life is, having enough money to send your kids to school so you have a car. That's one aspect. I mean, we're on the precipice. On the what? Precipice. We're on the cliff. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Our planetary system is our failings all over the world. And people still believe that that's worth living for, those material goods. Even though we know we're on, on the cliff, that all the ecosystems are breaking down. Yeah. But we still believe that vision of well-being. And it's not. I mean, it's, it's nothing less than collective suicide, what's happening. If, if, if knowing that the climate crisis is destroying life on Earth, we still insist on not changing our lifestyle, what is that if not insanity? And the price for copper is rising and, and rising. The, the, it keeps skyrocketing. And I the mean, price for oil as well. Just think about copper, okay? Or nickel, cobalt, mm. and lithium. People think that private electric vehicles is a solution. It is so grossly unethical because, first of all, you, if you're going to transform the energy paradigm, first take care of public transport. Take care of all the public transport. Make it all electric. I'm not against it. If there's minerals left, and there won't be, then private electric vehicles. But, I mean, it's so unethical for people to buy electric cars knowing that there's not enough... There. By the way, folks, there are not enough minerals for everyone to have electric cars. There's hardly enough to do public transport. So how about being a little bit ethical and, and do all public transportation first, everything electric, then private electric vehicles. We're completely insane species. We're, everybody wants electric cars. There's just not enough minerals. I mean, India will have to keep relying on coal because there will not be enough of these green energy metals to transform that economy into green energy. There's just aren't enough cobalt. There's not enough cobalt or lithium. So, I mean, it is insane. There's nothing, uh, there's no other word to put it. So what's your utopia then? No, I don't know. I don't believe utopia. Your I, vision, I mean, you have to have some kind of a vision that so that it makes sense that you write all those emails every day, that you go to court. Well, uh, I, I think I, I, I heard once a, a really cool saying by this indigenous guy, I don't know where he was, maybe the Amazon, or maybe he's from North America. There's a lot of wise North American indigenous. He said, look, all, all we're doing is buying time. That's the way I look. And we're, hopefully we're buying time until there's a, a sea change, a change in consciousness, where people realize that we really have to change things. So I'm just contributing with my grain of sand to that change of consciousness. So we're just buying time until that happens by making more people aware. I mean, maybe one or two of your listeners will become aware of it. Well, that's better. Two is better than nothing. <laughs> so if we all do that until there is that sea change, that complete change of consciousness, that's what I try to do. That other vision, dominant vision of development, is killing life on Earth. 
and but little by little we're chipping at it. All of us, all these, all of us activists, little by little, and that's what we're doing. Eventually, it'll topple if you undermine that massive infrastructure that's called the uh, dominant vision of development. If you little by little you, you chip away at it, mm-hmm. maybe it'll topple down. So that's all we're doing. Okay. That's all you can do. What else can you do? I know some people just don't I mean, do and, anything anymore. And I'm, I'm I'm living sustainably off the land. You know, I, I consume like 60 kilowatts per month, even though I live very well. Mm-hmm. I don't own a car. I grow as much food as I possibly can. I use composted latrines. So personally, I have a I have a positive impact on the environment. Mm-hmm. And and so people come here to visit, and this is an example. Mm. That you can do also. I mean, change also starts with us. Mm. You can't just talk about this. Yeah, you yeah. I, I live off the road and so on. So could you say that your utopia was this shift in consciousness of what a good life is? Yeah. Is that your utopia? Well-being, yeah. I mean, I would rather people not use development anymore, but word. well-being. Yeah, well-being. What does it take for you to be well? with yourself and your family and your relationships. Yeah. Is it just money? I doubt it. What's the use of having money if you don't have friends or if you or if you so live in such a toxic environment that you're sick all the time, mm-hmm. like that guy with the, the cement guy? Yeah. So let's stop using development and, and gross national product to measure well-being. That's not well-being. That's just one measure of well-being. Well-being includes money, but includes a hell of a lot more about than money. And what could listeners do to support this utopia, this vision? I think I tell everyone is to get educated. What goes into your vehicle? Where does it come from? Or your house, or your wiring, or that extra iPhone you're going to buy when you don't need it. So it's just a reflection Start reflecting, getting more. Know that if you're going to buy a gold ring, know that it's going to be a million ounces of waste product somewhere, and maybe a community would have to be relocated. For, and maybe somebody killed. Or, or yeah, somebody gold, killed, which happens a lot. Gold worse than copper. Yeah. Gold is much worse than copper. So start getting educated and just reduce your consumption because a lot of it comes down to overconsumption of the rich countries. Mm. Where does it all come from? Everything comes from the earth, folks. Mm. It doesn't just come from nowhere. And our lifestyle has a direct impact on places like here. And my neighbors, in my house, I live within a mining concession. This could be one day an open pit mine. And there's these unbelievably beautiful places in the earth. Species that have been around millions of years will become extinct. So people can drive around electric vehicles. Think about that. I always say, if you get motivated, you find a way to get involved in a fight. Start locally. Change your laws in your community. Have your river declare rights to your river or your mountain nearby. Start local. And then support positive struggles. Because if anything, there's too many negative examples out there. Way too many. The few positive ones... Support those. Find them all over the world. Philippines, Ecuador, Brazil. Mm-hmm. And What do you mean with the negative examples? There's all these horrible environmentalists disappearing, tortures. Ah, okay. 
relocation and there's but there's a few examples of really positive communities rising out and uh, finding sustainable livelihoods very few even in germany i'm sure there's uh, all over the world is really positive examples of living in harmony with your environment support those projects get involved or, or make your own start your own community sustainable but really sustainable not just greenwash sustainable And it means living within, what is sustainability? Living within the limits of the earth and your ecosystem, your particular ecosystem. Find out what the ecosystem is. There's a lot you can do. There's a lot of information out there about how to live sustainably or in harmony. But again, ask yourself what well-being is, what it takes for you to be well, if it's just money. If it's not, find out what it is and, and make it happen. Do you have stories or facts or examples that show you that your idea of utopia or your this vision that there is or there should be a consciousness change that it's already happening? Well, it, I, that's definitely happening. I don't know if it's happening fast enough. Hmm. I think the climate crisis is showing us that it's not happening fast enough. Hmm. Do you have positive examples that it's happening? Yeah, I, I, it's all over the world. There's all these communities. A lot more people are becoming vegetarian, for example, because of that. The planet's vegan also. People are consuming less meat. There's a trend to that. Not, not nearly fast enough, but um, I feel that I am part of this global community that we're trying to make a difference. And the young people, Fridays for the Future... There is this global community out there that realize that we've gone over the limits and we need to step back. Don't you feel that way, I'm sure? I do, yeah. I do. That's why I'm here, almost five months here now. Right. Because I think it's worth it. Because I think it makes a difference. Too. Yeah, I mean, it, the odds are overwhelming against us. Mm. Because yeah. the dominant idea of what well-being and development is, is, is uh, really powerful. Money is really powerful. Companies that make billions of dollars, thousands of millions of dollars, and corrupt politicians, bad companies. But I mean, it's just amazing after 27 years of confronting three transnationals, governments, paramilitaries, police, military, that there's still enough people saying, no, this is not what Intag needs or wants and it's damaging our communities. If you think about that, 27 years, you know, police raids, false lawsuits, false arrests, incarcerations, and, and there's enough people still saying no. That's not right, and it's not going to happen. So that's the real story to me. After so many years, there's in people like Javier and And Senaida, all her family, and, and Liana, and Hugo, all these people are still, they say, no, living off the land is what it's all about. And you're not going to violate my rights. That's a real story there. You, you know, putting up five years, it's okay. <laughs> But 27 years, that doesn't happen very often. It does not happen very often. Did you get enough? <laughs> that would be a, all, all that would be 10 minutes. <laughs> no, no. Last question. If there's one thing people should understand about Intag, what is it? 
and the connection between Intac and the future of this planet. I mean, you, we talked about it now one and a half hours, but... It, <laughs> that there are places like these all over the world being destroyed because of this perverse way of looking at, at life and, and what development is. That we're not alone. All over the world, these places being destroyed, human rights violated, rivers contaminated for eternity because people don't care. And they don't, they're too lazy to find out and do something about it. That's what I, I would say. We are not alone. That's nice. We're not alone. It's all over the world. And it's going to be much worse because it's a drive of energy transformation. So this is important for the listeners to know that this transformation to electrify everything will exacerbate environmental human rights abuses much, much more. So be aware and do something. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, Diotopista, for listening to the whole conversation. That means a lot to us. Tell us what you think. And if you liked it, please share it with anybody who could need a little utopia today. I quickly summarized the best practice examples Carlos mentioned to protect nature against mining, so it's easier to remember. And not just only if your community is affected, but in general. So there was get educated what mining means for the community before you let any mining company in. Then create unity, have a decision-making process that involves everybody. Don't expose leaders. Then if you buy things, make sure you know where they are coming from. Also the parts of it. If not, ask. Ask companies and governments. Put pressure on them. Then don't buy so many things. Then, find out what a good life means to you, or wealth. Are money and cars really that important? He also said they burned down a mining camp. Yeah, they did. And it seemed to have helped. But we as Radio Utopistan do not support any form of violence against material things or even humans. This can never be a solution, of course. But also, of course, you have to defend yourself when attacked, But what that means is a whole huge new topic and we can talk about it in another episode. Maybe you know a utopista who's working on the topic. Tell us, we are curious. About the intact topic, you can find more information in the show notes or on social media. Also contact information to some organizations working on the case if you want to support them or know more. My name is Elisabeth Weidt, Radio Utopistan team for this episode are Editor and Executive Producer Charlotte Horn and Christina Femöbels, Music Robert Pilgrim and Studio Recording in beautiful Quito, Andres Galerza. We are also always happy about support, of course. Share our stories, get involved, become a Utopista. Just contact us via our website or social media. So far, we are all working for free to bring you constructive stories and solution journalism. Help us stay independent and sustainable. You might also want to check out some of the previous episodes. We have more nature topics, but also a story about how to deal with racism and right-wing extremism, for example, or how to have more fruitful and less polarizing political discussions. Now and here I leave you with a song. It's sang by Senaida Guachakmira. Carlos mentioned her briefly. She's one of the plaintiffs in the intact court case, meaning 
She is suing the Ecuadorian government because of violation of nature rights and human rights. She is 28, only one year older than the conflict. That's how she likes to introduce herself. All her life she's been defending nature now. Here she sings for you, Solo le pido adios. This is one of the big Latin American anthems for freedom and against violation of rights. In the background you hear one of the many rivers in Intact as there's almost no place where you don't hear water. Enjoy, stay hopeful, and bye-bye. Solo le pido adiós Que el futuro no me sea indiferente Que esta resaca muerte no me encuentre Vacía, sola y sin haber hecho lo suficiente Solo le pido a Dios Que lo injusto no me sea indiferente Si un traidor vale más que unos cuantos Que esos cuantos no lo olviden fácilmente Que es un monstruo grande y pisa fuerte Toda la pobre inocencia de la gente Solo le pido a Dios que el futuro no me sea indiferente, que es un monstruo grande y pisa fuerte toda la pobre inocencia de la gente. Gracias. Voy a ponerlo en mi celular. <laughs> And because it was so beautiful, here another one. That's from the band Tucanes from Intac. Como en Sarum acabaron en el oriente también. Piensan que en el occidente también lo pueden hacer. Están muy equivocados, eso no pueden hacer. Porque la zona está unida y la vamos a defender. Porque la zona está unida y la vamos a defender. A las empresas mineras les pedimos que se vayan, dejen libre nuestro aire, nuestros ríos y laderas. Les pedimos que se vayan y no vayan a volver, porque si vuelven carajo, <risa> les volvemos a encender. Ya, yeah. me dijeron que no diga eso porque nos pueden <risa> decir, están amenazando a las empresas. <risa> es una canción, es arte. Se sí. puede decir todo en el arte. ¿no? Sí, ojalá esto, estos gobiernos no dañaran tanto la ley a favor de ellos. Yeah. <risa> Hoy en la zona de Intag levantamos nuestra voz porque el agua es vida y la vamos a defender. Porque el agua es vida y la vamos a defender.